Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is brought to you by liquidweb.com, the most reliable hosting provider with 24-7 heroic support. Listeners of today's show will receive $100 credit towards Storm servers, which includes virtual private servers and dedicated hosting. Or you can try LiquidWeb's shared hosting for free for one month by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. Please visit liquidweb.com and make sure that you tell them that you found out about them on the show. Today's topic, how you can sustain wildlife with native plants. Biodiversity is something that clearly affects all species. Everything is connected to each other, regardless of whether or not it is on a large or small scale. Sometimes the way we garden can actually improve our landscape, and at times can be disastrous, such as the case with the introduction of invasive species such as kudzu, purple loosestrife, etc. Nevertheless, there are choices we can make that can positively impact our landscape according to the plants we select and what we introduce into the landscape. Our choices not only affect our view of the land, but can also impact animals, insects, and microorganisms that are dependent upon the role of such plants. In essence, human beings have the power to sustain life or destroy it because of these choices. On today's show, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Douglas Palmy, and we're going to be talking about his magnificent book called Bringing Nature Home, which explores the impact of our choices and what we can do to sustain wildlife in our own backyard. So I would like to welcome to the show Dr. Douglas Palmy. Good afternoon, Professor Palmy, and welcome to The Organic View. Thank you, June. Pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to finally have you on the show. I have heard so many wonderful things about you, about uh, my good friend, uh, John Peter Thompson, who's an invasive species expert who's been on the show several times, and he cannot say enough wonderful things about you. And he told me, he said, June, when you get a copy of this book, you are not going to put it down, and this is going to be a book that you're going to tote with you, especially um, when you go to different um, uh, horticultural hotline uh, workshops and whatnot, or not workshops, but when you're uh, working with the public and doing all sorts of stuff, because it's just such a great reference book, and not to mention the fact that the pictures are just absolutely fantastic. Well, and I appreciate I, all those kind words. <laughs> well, I took the book actually in my backyard, and it was just amazing how much you learn just by looking at all the different uh, species that you reference and just seeing what you can find in your your own yard. And I think it's also a great tool for teachers if they want to help children understand how everything is connected. That, that's a, a really important point because our yards are the first place that our children are introduced to nature. And they can either be introduced to a lot of nature, to interesting things, um, or very little nature, or they, even worse, they can be um, taught to fear nature. And that's happening an awful lot these days. Yeah, it's it's a shame. I think that has to do with the fact that uh, the way our food is presented to us, it's basically uh, stripped of the feathers, stripped of any um, a- anything to do with its origin. I mean, everything is packaged. It's right. Right. it's it's breaded. It's it's uh, got all sorts of coatings and and dressings and all sorts of stuff. And for that very reason people have just really become disconnected with nature. And I think if they were more connected, especially with the food that they eat, and if they saw that, you know, apples are not necessarily, you know, the per- this perfectly shaped fruit, but they have all sorts of uh, flaws because that's, you know, what happens in nature, that it would help to just reinforce the fact that, um, you know, nature is 
not um, not something that comes in a particular package and is always consistent as far as size, color, texture, so on and so forth. And it, I think it's also not optional. We absolutely need nature. We need all those those living things out there because those are the things that run the ecosystems that produce the ecosystem services that keep humans alive and happy. And if we and if we sterilize our living environments to the point where nature is, is essentially gone, then our, our children, who are the future stewards of the planet, won't miss it when it disappears. Um, they'll miss it eventually, but, but they, they don't realize that when they look out, out of their window and they see nothing, that that's not, that's not normal, that's not right. They think that is normal because it's the only thing they've ever, ever experienced. So it's really important that we put nature back in their lives, not just not just to, to bond them to net the natural world, but um, because we have developed so much of, of the physical area of the U.S. and the world in general, um, we can't afford to take those systems, that all that area, out of, out of uh, the production of ecosystem services. There's not enough natural areas left uh, to produce all of those, those things that, that keep our ecosystems going. Um, so we need to start thinking about our yards, our gardens, as places to, to produce oxygen, to produce clean water, uh, to, to sequester carbon dioxide, to support food webs that produce that, that uh, support all of the animals that are out there. All these things can happen right in our yards if we remember what plants do. Oh, I completely agree. And that's, I guess, why it's so important for people to have that constant a uh, reminder of how everything plays its part, you know. Um, Dr. Tellamy, can you tell our audience about yourself and also uh, the work, uh, the, the research that you've been involved with uh, so that our audience can become more familiar with you? Okay. Well, I'm an, I'm an entomologist at the University of, of Delaware. I've been here 30 years, um, and I have studied, among uh, many other things, how insects um, interact with, with uh, plants that are on this, this planet. Um, so, you know, most people don't like insects very much, and they just assume not think about what insects are doing. And we tend to think of plants only, only in terms of their ornamental value. You know, they're ornaments that decorate our landscapes, and of course we don't want insects eating our, our ornaments. Um, but plants do all those things I just talked about. They, you know, they, they, um, they're the basis of, of every food web. It's plants that capture the energy from the sun and, and, and turn it into, um, you know, they turn the energy into to, uh, uh, simple sugars and carbohydrates. The energy from the sun is then locked up in the carbon bonds of, of simple sugars and carbohydrates, which are the basis of, of all the food webs on the planet, except for some minor ones at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so plants, in essence, are allowing us and everything else to eat sunlight. And if we only think of them in terms of their ornamental value, um, we're, we're taking a huge, huge risk here. Unfortunately, all plants are not equal in their ability to support food webs. And that's what, what my research has been, been showing. Uh, it turns out that uh, particularly insects uh, are very sensitive to um, which plants they are able to eat. They're able to eat the ones that they have developed adaptations uh, for. Uh, and this is all because because plants don't want to be eaten. Plants want to protect that energy that they've locked up in their tissues, and so they, they load their leaves with nasty-tasting chemicals. We call them secondary metabolic compounds. And that that makes most plants unpalatable to most of the herbivores that are, that are out there. And if you don't believe me, just walk outside and grab a leaf of anything and eat it, and you'll find it doesn't taste very good. So most insects cannot eat most plants. How do insects eat plants? Well, they become a specialist on a particular type of chemical defense, and they develop the, the enzymes and the phys physiological adaptations that allow them to circumvent that, get around that defense. And the life histories, they come out at the right time of year, and they eat the plant in a certain way so that they can eat that particular plant without being poisoned. Um, that's, that's called specialization, and I always, always use the monarch butterfly as a perfect example mm, yeah. because it's a specialist on milkweeds. It only eats milkweeds, and what it's really specialized on uh, is the, the cardiac glycosides. Those are the chemicals that are defending milkweeds. 
Um, so actually, when you're running outside and, and eating plants, don't eat a milkweed, because if you eat enough milkweed or enough cardiac glycosides, it'll stop your heart. We don't want that. <laughs> no. but, but of course, monarchs are able to eat them uh, with, without any problem, and that's the good part about specializing. The downside about specializing is that, that now that's all that monarchs can eat. Yeah. So if we if we remove milkweeds from our landscape be, because we want lawn or we want uh, violets or something else, the monarch cannot eat lawn or violets or oak trees or anything else, and they'll disappear. And it's really tough because milkweeds tend to take over. Um, well, you, you can find a certain part of your of your yard where you can have a nice little milkweed patch and and support those those monarchs. But remember, that's one species of, of insect herbivore, and we have we have many thousands in this country. Ninety percent of them are specialists, just like that that monarch. So if we landscape in a way that uh, eliminates the plant communities, the native plant communities that support those those insects, we're going to lose ninety percent of our insect herbivores. The problem with that is that so many other things eat insects that we can't afford to lose them, or the entire food web, terrestrial food web, will collapse. So, so for example, everybody likes birds. Well, 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects, where the book will say insects and other arthropods, and the other arthropods are spiders, which ate insects to become spiders. So no matter how you slice it, if you take the, the insects away, you're taking away the food for, for all of our baby birds, or 96% of them. Uh, and you know, if people look at it that way, then they say, "Well, that's they get it. They they say we really do need insects." And of course, birds are just one group. And there are many mammals that that need insects. The entire food web is depending on insects to gather energy from the plant and pass it on. And that's the problem. We have landscaped in a way that makes it very tough on on our local insects. Most of our ornamental plants come from someplace else. Many of them come from Asia, and most of them are very poor at supporting our local insects because uh, they our insects haven't had a chance to build up those adaptations to specialize on those particular plants. So if we if we landscape with a, a crepe myrtle, for example, you look at those crepe myrtle leaves, nothing is eaten out of those because nothing can eat those plants. Actually, there's three species of, of caterpillars recorded from it. But compare that to an, an oak tree where there's 534 species recorded. If you're if you wanna if you wanna put a plant in your yard that acts like a bird feeder, put an oak tree out there because that's exactly what it's doing. It's making bird food. I'm just taking a break. Yeah, I can keep talking if you want. Is, no, no, no. I'm I'm just thinking about um, you know how many different plants that are out there that um, y- you know you don't really think about the interaction between the plants that are there, their role what species feed off of these plants, and if they happen to take over, how many uh, species will be, well, will have to find other homes. But also, what happens when you have one particular dominant species that has taken over something that, um, you know, something else. And if you look at the animal kingdom, uh, this is something that uh, I know that a lot of scientists have been working on as far as um, predators that are essential to an ecosystem because right. people think that predators are bad because basically Hollywood has taught us that and we're groomed to think that they're bad because of you know everything from our parents to uh, all sorts of different um, references that say that predators are bad. They're the enemy. And the thing is is that uh, there was a a film called The Lords of Nature in which they show what happens when you remove a necessary predator. Other species basically take over, and what they do is they wipe out the uh, landscape. There are certain trees that will no longer be able to grow because that's the source of food. And in essence, so many different habitats are destroyed. So when you look at that from that perspective and then you apply it to, you know, you take a closer look, which is what you're, you've done, and you're saying, okay, well, um, you're looking at certain plants that have dominating traits, and when they take over, look at how this affects so many different microorganisms and, in essence, even macroorganisms. Um, 
And, and when we look at the plants that are taking over, we, you know, we call them invasive species. Mm. 85% of our woody invasive species are escapees from our garden. We have brought them in as ornamentals, and then they they stay in our garden, but they move into our, our natural areas as well. So 85% of them, it's, it's almost every uh, woody invasive species you can think of was once brought in by the, the horticultural trade. Uh, and now 30% of the plant biomass in our, our natural areas are is from, from Asia, not supporting the, the food webs that, that we need them to support. So um, our, our little parks and preserves are supposed to be keeping our, our uh, native species around, but um, they're doing a poor job for two reasons. They're too small. And, you know, 30% of their plants aren't doing the job they're supposed to do because they didn't evolve here. So there's a tremendous cost when we when we select a plant from, from Asia and put it into our, our yard. And it comes as a huge surprise to people to realize that their, their little property does have really important um, ecological value and plays an extremely important ecological roles. We did a survey, uh, I guess it was two summers ago, looking at, w- at what our suburban landscapes look like in terms of, of the plants that are in them uh, and it was a pretty big sample size but the, but the result is that 92% of the landscapable area turned out to be lawn so 92% is lawn where, where there are very few plants at all I mean lawn is, a, is, is um, you know, it's very close to paving over the, the, the landscape most of the plants have been removed 79% of the plants that are in that landscape are introduced they're from someplace else so here we have a barren landscape with lawn and very few plants in it, but the plants that are there are from someplace else. We also looked at the amount of, of tree biomass, so just comparing the amount of trees in a suburban, uh, an average suburban yard with what would be found in a, a local woodlot, and it was only 10% of the trees. So we have removed 90% of the tree biomass. Uh, that's a pretty stark landscape, and if it's if it's comprised largely of plants from someplace else, then um, it's no wonder that, that our, our animals are struggling. There's very little left to eat out there in our suburban neighborhoods. Now, one of the buzzwords, if you will, that many people tend to throw around is the word biodiversity and also the word sustainability. Right. Can you please give your definition of both words? Okay, there, there are actually a lot of uh, definitions of biodiversity. It's really a measure of, of the different life forms on Earth, but you can measure it in several, several different ways. You can talk about genetic diversity, or you can talk about population diversity or community diversity. Most people think of biodiversity in terms of species diversity, so simply count up the number of species in an area and say that is the biodiversity in, in your particular area, and that's, that's a fine definition. Sustainability... Uh, is, I mean, if you think about what the word means, it means it is going to stay uh, in its current state essentially forever. Uh, Economists tend to think of sustainability in five-year intervals, but if we're talking about sustaining life on Earth and building sustainable ecosystems and sustainable landscapes, we're not talking about for five years. We're talking about uh, forever, uh, or at least in ecological time. And right now I'm going to argue that our, our, our... Yards, our neighborhoods are not landscaped in a sustainable way because they are not supporting nearly the amount of life that they used to. And if you reduce the amount of life in a particular area, that makes that makes food webs very unstable. It makes ecosystems very unstable. And uh, it, they're they're again, I get back to those ecosystem services. Our landscapes are no longer producing the ecosystem services that we humans need. Every time we add an additional human to the to the uh, planet, we need more plants making more ecosystem services, not fewer. So the you know, if you picture Manhattan, where almost all the plants have been removed, uh, and everybody's thriving there, and it looks like it's it's a great ecosystem, it's it's actually a completely dead ecosystem, and the only thing, the only reason people can live there is because we are bringing in ecosystem services from someplace else. Oh, of course, yeah. So if you can't do that everywhere. You've got to have healthy ecosystems someplace else to, to provide the oxygen and the food and the water and remove the garbage and all the other things that, that happen on, on Manhattan Island. Um, so the plan of, of growing forever and, and developing forever is, is not a good one because the planet has not grown the last time I looked. <laughs> no, it has not. But the thing is, is that with the continued or, or, or continuous... Um, 
or should I, I guess continued use of especially systemic pesticides, mm. how do you think that 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 these pesticides affect not only uh, the plant life but all the species that are dependent upon those very plants that are being affected by these agrochemicals? Yeah, uh, it's a big question because you know, it depends on where we're using those pesticides. We've really boxed ourselves in the corner uh, in terms of, of growing a population um, that is way above the ability of, of small little little uh, farm lots to, to support them. We need these giant mega farms, uh, and we need to grow plants in giant monocultures. And, of course, that's, that's a wonderful situation for a pest because then they you know have endless food. So mm. how do you control them? Well, everybody turns to, to, to chemicals. Um, it's a, and to back away from that at this point uh, is going to be very tough. It's all, all based on, on, on all of the energy input from fossil fuel industry. And if, if that were to disappear, mega agriculture would also disappear. And, and uh, you know, I just don't see how there'd be enough food for the 7 billion people we have on this, on this planet. There are things that we do with our pesticides that we do not need to do. And I'll go back to our suburban lawns. You know, there's, our lawns are status symbols. And the bigger they are, it, it's, it's a sign that we're wealthier. And the greener they are, it's a sign that we're, you know, Again, we're, we have high status and and, uh, and we're good citizens because we put on our fertilizer and we put on our, our uh, herbicides to, to kill the dandelions and, and so on and kill the chinch bugs and um, so in order to, to create this this artificial uh, carpet of green, we have a lot of chemical inputs. Then it rains and most of them wash off. Uh, when you have a, a, a hot dry summer, as you know we're having just about everywhere. Mm. Um, the, the ground gets baked and lawns become highly impervious, 50 to 75% impervious. So if you get a big rain after you put down that fertilizer, uh, most of it washes off into your nearest stream. And now it's in the, in the waterway. Uh, so we wonder why the Chesapeake Bay is, is, is dead, uh, because we've lined it with, with lawns. I mean, we've lost, I, I forget the figure, something like 100 acres of forest a day from the Chesapeake um, Bay watershed. Uh, since what 1985 or something? I mean, it's it's an incredible figure, uh, and replace that, of course, with with all of these managed ecosystems that are that are using all the pesticides, and it's it's just not for a good reason. So that we can have really green lawns. I mean, I don't know. I'd rather I don't want to get rid of lawns. I want to I want to shrink them to the point where we have them where we walk. I mean, lawn is the perfect plant to walk on without killing it. So look at your yard and, and decide. You know where do I where do I walk, uh, and and mark out your little lawn areas and your lawn paths and move yourself around around your property, and then everything else should become heavily planted with with um, native plant communities that are are attractive but are supporting an, an awful lot of of animals. What we're doing when we do that is are is building biological corridors right through suburbia that connect the isolated habitat patches um, at each end of the street. Uh, and that will allow the populations in those isolated patches to to thrive. Tiny populations don't; they they fluctuate and eventually disappear. Mm. Um, so if you connect those those habitat patches, then the populations aren't tiny in, anymore. And the only way we can connect them is is through our our managed ecosystems, our our neighborhoods, and our corporate landscapes, um, and even even our our agricultural fields. You know, we we can't afford to shrink agriculture, but we can certainly treat the land better than we do. Now, just out of curiosity, on that note, um, considering how much pollution we create because of our obsessive compulsion with uh, lawns and lawn care, uh, just out of curiosity, what is your thought on on the landscape when it comes to the fracking process? Uh-huh. <laughs> I had to ask. Yeah. I just had Dr. Sandra Steingraber on uh, last Friday, and uh, you know this is something that is a very big, heated debate here in New York. Uh, not to mention, you know, many other parts of the world where people have seen what it does to the landscape as well as their groundwater. Right. I mean, I live in Pennsylvania. I, I know about fracking, but 
Um, we have a society that is built on fossil fuels. We have dragged our feet in terms of, of, of finding alternative um, energy sources, so much so that now it, it is other countries that are that are uh, way ahead of us in that regard. And when it comes to, to really switching over to these sources, we're going to have to buy the technology from China and Japan and Germany and all these other places because we've continued to rely so heavily on, on fossil fuels. So the oil, you know, oils. Expensive, and all of a sudden we find a technology that allows us to get to the, the gas that is below our, our ground. And, and so we go nuts. We just do it immediately, and it's it's broad. I heard a figure this morning, I don't know, $13 billion or something to, to Pennsylvania already. And, and, of course, these economies need that money, so you know all the pressures that are forcing us to do that. But as happens so often, we are doing it quickly and and without the, the proper uh, approaches, or at least looking at how can we do this with minimal environmental impact, even if it, even if there was no problem with our water, which I know there are problems, but even if there are not, we're taking these 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 habitat fragments that are out there and further fragmenting them. Every single road that goes into a to a fracking uh, center is another another fragment. Um, so all over the place in their natural areas, all this is happening in, our, in our, our, our state lands and all the places that, that you know were remaining wildlife areas are now loaded with with uh, gas pipes. From here, I mean, you, you fly over the Rockies these days, and you look down, you can see it from whatever altitude. You can see it all over the place. Uh, so we're doing that. Uh, I think 50 years from now, we're going to be pretty sad that we we did all that. Um, well, I mean, if they turn the United States into a toxic waste dump, which, yeah. I mean, some of the comments that are coming out of uh, our friends across the pond are not really too nice when it comes to the practices that we've implemented here and how we farm our lands, how it just we care for the environment. And it's almost disgraceful that, you have countries like France that are the first to jump on top of something and say, absolutely not, we will not allow this on our land, but we seem to be the slowpokes where we have to have enough lawsuits and deaths right. in order to take action. Right. And I think that's a travesty. Yeah. But the bottom line is, is that um, with these these ecosystems that would be destroyed by fracking, uh, as, as you said, it would be one thing if the process or processes were thought out and everything um, had been fully tested you know, from start to finish, but it's almost as if, yeah, let's do it. It seems like a good idea. Some people are going to make tons of money. Of course, people are going to make a lot of money, uh, and it's not necessarily the people that think that they're going to make the money. It's basically you know, the corporations that are... Uh, trying to gain access to the land. The environmental disaster that's at hand is a huge concern because the people that own the land don't have the money to uh, clean it up. Right, for sure. You know, it's just another sign that we do not believe deep in our, our hearts, and certainly we don't believe it in our political hearts, that we need functioning ecosystems. We think we can abuse them, no, you know, to to the nth degree, uh, because because having that gas now is more important than having than maintaining functioning ecosystems. And of course, the gas pays off right now. So economically, any economic model would say, "Yep, get immediate money up front, and we'll deal with the consequences down the road." But you can only kick that can down the road so far uh, before we're going to be be very very sorry about that. It's um, <laughs> it's something that I think. People who who are educated and understand what the ramifications are, they get it. And unfortunately, there are others that, unless this happens in their own backyard, that's when they'll start to pay attention to it. Okay. It's very easy to say, yeah, I want this, I want that, uh, but when it happens in your own backyard, you know, then what? Well, you know, it's interesting in New York because the Catskills, are one of those places that, that supply ecosystem services for New York City. That's where they get their water. If we go do fracking in the Catskills and mess up New York City's water supply, um, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> and there would be a lot of people want to know why we did that. So, Well, I think 
especially not just the water, but the air. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's, that's the other crazy thing. We're supposed to be concerned about climate change here, and yet we're doing everything we can to get that last bit of fossil fuel out of the ground and into the air. Um, just you know, fighting. We've, we have successfully mounted a, a, a huge uh, public campaign to, to confuse the public about the importance of this issue. For the last 20 years, it's been enormously successful, so that even today we're doing absolutely nothing about it. Uh, and and almost everybody who's alive on the planet today is is going to look back in the very near future and say, what were we thinking? Well, it's interesting. The state of New Jersey had tremendous problems uh, 20, 30 years ago with all of the waste that was being dumped haphazardly. And now the state is pretty aggressive as far as the waste management and it's a shame that it had to go through that whole transition in yeah. order to be as aggressive as they are today. I mean, I just think it's kind of ridiculous that in the state of New Jersey, you are not allowed to pump your own gas by law, but <laughs> right. in uh, New York, you know, go for it. And yeah. the thing is, is that the emissions that are generated by the gasoline are really very bad for you, but yet, you know, once again, we don't have those laws in place. And the kicker is gasoline in New Jersey is usually 20 cents cheaper than in New York. Yeah, that's and right. that's <laughs> that's kind of the irony of uh, everything. I mean, you, you go to other states, and it just does not make sense. But I think it's a shame that we have to get to the point where things are just about nearly completely destroyed in order for action to take place. Well, we're a reactive species and not a not a proactive one. Just in our makeup. Now, with with the pollution that has gone on uh, from th the fracking, I mean, is there anything that really can be done to restore the ecosystem in areas that have already been affected? Uh, we're we're getting pretty far outside my area of expertise, but because fracking fracking is new and. Uh, you know, if you chop the trees down, you gotta you gotta allow them to grow back. But mm. um, a, 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 something else that's that's much more apparent, of course, is the mountaintop removal for coal in West Virginia, um, where they take a mountain with a forest on it and they essentially bulldoze the whole thing. And then when they're through, they replant the grassland on um, subsoil that's not there's no topsoil left or anything. And then say, well, we've restored it. So you, you replaced a forest with uh, a grassland that was going to struggle for decades trying to rebuild topsoil. Uh, so is that is that a restoration from from uh, you know getting all that coal out of the ground? I certainly not in terms of of keeping the species that used to be there. No, uh, it, it's it's kind of like wiping out a garden area and then putting up potted plants that are, uh, <laughs> you know. In the cheapest plants possible, some yeah. of them even being plastic, yeah. just to say that, oh, yeah, here's your garden. Now you have your little vision of beauty uh, that you can enjoy, and it's really not the same. But uh, just out of curiosity, when it comes to working in an area where there has been devastation, and uh, say if a homeowner, for example, wishes to try to do this on their own, where they will find out what the native plants are for that particular area. Mm -hmm. How long of a process is that, and is it even is it possible for a homeowner to restore the land? It is. It is. And I can tell you that from personal experience because that's exactly what we've been doing at, at our house. We moved into our house uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I guess it's 11 years this summer. And the area, you know, it's been farmed for for almost 400 years and very little topsoil left and recently before we moved in it was it was mowed for hay so you know the forests are gone and, and uh, uh, very little very little life there but we have worked in we're talking about 10 acres and we have put um, several hundred trees back and none of them are huge 300 year old trees um, but at this point after 10 years they are you know 10 15 uh, some of them even 20 feet tall uh, and they are rebuilding the soil, and I can 
you know, I know the insects that ought to be there, and I see them coming back, and then I see the birds that eat those insects coming back, and, and I can see the restoration of, of a thriving ecosystem just within 10 years, and actually a lot of it starting coming back um, much earlier. So that's it's one of the reasons I, I wrote this book is because I can see how quickly we really can make a difference. Is it as good as it was, uh, you know, in the beginning? No, but... Um, we have we have my last count was 103 species of woody plants on that property at this point, um, which is probably 75 species more than were there when when we moved in, and all of the insects that use those species are, are coming back, and that gives you a variety of food for for all of the birds. Every year we record new birds breeding at, at our our property, and wow. we have we have uh, a fox den in the front yard. I mean these are fun things to watch. This is the first year we had turkeys come back, so. So I can see that this this really does happen, and you don't have to have 10 acres for it to happen, too. Even if you have a small lot, um, you can make a difference. There's a there's an interesting uh, um, story of a uh, little 15-by-15-foot garden that that um, employees at the, the Department of Ag Building in Dover, Delaware, planted uh, a few years ago. They, they were actually putting in a garden to look at the... the um, native bees that still survived in Dover, Delaware. And this is in a courtyard, so it's surrounding by a building. Hmm. And some of the plants they put in this, this little 15 by 15 foot garden was uh, were milkweeds. And one of the young ladies there decided she would count the number of, of monarch butterfly adults that, that went from egg to adult on those milkweeds in that little little garden patch. The first year that they planted it, and it was 150. So that tiny little space really helped the monarch po- population in Dover, Delaware. And then they've been doing it every every year since then. So don't give up on small spaces. They can be tremendously productive um, for our insect friends. And I think especially people that are becoming interested in uh, having a butterfly habitat right. as part of their garden, um, you know, it, it also does help because you're you're attracting more pollinators especially some of the prettier ones that uh, people would like to see come into their garden. But uh, it's just very interesting that, you know, you bring up the small little garden. I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that there is a very big need for the homeowner to take action and to plant certain types of plants that can be used as food sources for different species. And, of course, if you get your neighbors to do it, too, then it's not so small. If you get your entire neighborhood to do it, it's not so small. You could have your entire neighborhood uh, um, gardening for, for monarchs or gardening for, for tiger swallowtails or or uh, blue grosbeaks. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are, are endless. And then it, become, it becomes a, a uniting social adventure. You can all research on how to do this, and the kids can see when they first arrive. And, and uh, you know, that's the connection with nature that, that I would really like to see happen with with all ages, and of course, the more area you you, you do this in, the, the more effective it's going to be. Now, just out of curiosity, if a homeowner that happens to be tuning in today is planning for next year's garden, mm-hmm. and uh, they're inspired by your research to make some changes next year, what are some of the first things that you would recommend that are done to the land? so that they can kind of get the ball rolling? Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, If they are a typical homeowner, uh, they have plenty of space for more trees. So the first thing I would do is is get some more trees into your landscape. And I I would build beds around those trees so that you're not mowing under them. That will reduce the amount of area that you have in lawn, so you can also add... Um, native viburnums and, and um, uh, calmia. Uh, there's endless endless number of, of shrubs. The understory trees, your your shadbush, your serviceberry, um, uh, native crab apples. There's all kinds of things that that can be beautiful. You can put into your yard that will get that plant biomass back back into your yard. That's the most effective thing you can do. But really, before you do that, you want to come up with it, with at least a general plan. Plan out those areas. Where do you want to maintain lawn? Where do you want to keep keep walking and keep keep mowing? Because if you have lawn, uh, I do think you should you should keep it mowed. That's where it it functions best, and it, and it um, 
Um, it convinces your neighbors that you really are landscaping. This is a, a planned activity, and you haven't you know you haven't abandoned the lot. That's not what we're trying to do here. Mm. Uh, but once you you decide where you want your lawn, then then start getting getting some of those trees into the landscape. This is a perfect time to plant oaks because the acorns are falling, and you can get it for free. And I know people say, oh, I can't put an acorn in. I won't live long enough to enjoy it. But I have I have white oaks all over my property that uh, I planted from seed from acorns. And they're now oh, 16, 17 feet tall. So wow. it's it's been 11 years, uh, but that time goes goes by fast these days. And even when they were small trees, they were they were supporting. Uh, they had structure for for nests. I have pictures of, of uh, sparrow nests in these trees, and they have polyphemus moths on them, and the birds are eating them. So if you want instant gratification, call your oak trees oak bushes, and then you've got it right away. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I noticed is that, especially um, in the suburbs, as people are cutting down trees, whether it's to put up a new home, make renovations on an existing home, or if they just feel that they don't want any damage uh, that could come about from a tree that is getting very tall, uh, one of the things that I've personally noticed is that I have this huge population of wildlife that's in my own yard and it's just amazing um if you just sit in the back it's all the different animals that you can hear it's just um it, it, it's just really great and you can, uh, you can use your house as a, as a blind you know when you're in your house and you look out your window most of the things that are outside cannot look into your window so they can't mm-hmm. see you and it's a perfect place um, to view wildlife so if you have uh, small trees by your house, like alternate leaf dogwood or, or, or service berry, right next to your windows, then um, you can see those birds sitting there right next to, to your window, and, and they become they become your pets. You get to know them. And, and we talk about interacting with, with, with uh, nature, but don't think of doing that once uh, or once a week or, or um, you know taking a field trip and taking a walk. You can do it 100 times a day when you bring it into your life in your lawn, close, up close to the house, and it really gives you a you know a warm and fuzzy feeling. It really makes you feel secure. Now, there's a question that I have, and uh, it's from uh, uh, one of the audience members. Uh, he would like to know why is it that you don't see as many frogs as there used to be, especially uh, in the New York metropolitan area. Okay. Uh, <laughs> There's several reasons. Uh, frogs, of course, breed in in uh, waterways, so we have filled in a good many of our of our wetlands. Um, but even where we have wetlands, I bet if you go out, if you're the average homeowner and you go out and you look in your window wells, um, chances are you will find a frog or several toads uh, or skeletons of of the frogs and toads that get stuck in the window wells. I I looked in mine the other day. I mean, this is something that that uh, we're all guilty of and and. At one time, I pulled out. I think it was nine toads and three frogs in a in a bucket and released them all. But you have to have to watch that because they they get stuck in there. And then, of course, when we're mowing everything, those guys get chopped up. Or on these rainy nights when they're moving, but from pond to pond, they get squashed by our cars. So at almost every turn, we're killing these things. And then we say, "Wow, well, where'd they go?" We make it really tough for them to get around and and to survive. So what's interesting is that you have people that say, well, you know, I don't want my lawn to get too high because then you're going to attract uh, field mice and all sorts of other critters. So they just feel that, you know what, when it gets to a certain point, I want it chopped down Mm -hmm. uh, just so that they can minimize their exposure to some of these critters. Not to mention the fact that, especially with the problems that we face with West Nile virus, Nobody wants water that's stagnant hanging around. Right. So, well, um, okay. Let's talk about mosquitoes. That's that's the reason you always hear for not having a, a little pond in your yard. But actually, mosquitoes don't do well in permanent water. It's not that they don't do well. It's just that their predators do do well. So when the water never dries up, then you have all of the other insects that eat mosquitoes living in those ponds, and that goes for those polywogs and dragonfly nymphs and, and um, all of the predators, uh, predaceous diving beetles. There are a number of, of aquatic predators that eat mosquito larvae. 
if the pond is allowed to dry up once or twice during the summer, that's what generates mosquitoes. Because then all the predators leave, and then you get a rain, and uh, either mosquitoes have laid their eggs on the mud and they just wait for the rain to come and, and they hatch, or they lay their eggs immediately when the, when the water's there. But then the mosquitoes beat the predators back, and it's enough time to get a generation through, uh, and that's when you get a lot of mosquitoes. So if you have so drain pipes, you know your gutters that get clogged are a perfect place for that to happen because then they dry up and there are no predators left, or or that tire in the back of your your yard. So it's these temporary bodies of water that that generate mosquitoes, um, and that's you know that's where the Asian tiger mosquito and all those guys that transmit uh, West Nile virus live. But a permanent body of water uh, that that has uh, um, frogs and toads and, and, and all of the uh, aquatic predators and even fish in it is not going to generate very many mosquitoes at all. Now, what about attracting certain types of birds? Are there, uh, for example, we had a question from the audience uh, from Elizabeth. She'd like to know, how can I attract more hummingbirds through plant selection? Uh, okay. Is there something that you can do? Sure. Yeah, hummingbirds are an easy one. Um, hummingbirds need two things. Everybody thinks that all they need is sugar water because they're nectar feeders. Um, and they, they are nectar feeders. They need a lot of nectar in order to to um, generate the huge amount of energy they need to keep those little bodies going and flying at the amazing speeds that they do fly. Uh, but when they're nesting, of course, they they feed their young insects and, and a lot of spiders. So you're not going to have hummingbirds around if, or they're not going to be nesting in your yard if you don't have enough insects to support them. If you want the the uh, hummingbirds to stop at your house when they're migrating, um, of course a hummingbird feeder is a great way to do it. But I would recommend uh, coral honeysuckle. That's our native honeysuckle with those those nice bright red flowers, uh, and red is attractive to hummingbirds. They're all over it. Put it in a prominent place so that you can see it outside your window and. It's sunny. You want you want a lot of sun for that, and they'll be loaded with flowers. My coral honeysuckle has flowers from May through November. I mean, wow. people talk about na native plants not blooming very long. Well, that's that's a record. Um, and hummingbirds will stop by that entire time period. Also, uh, um, Campsis radicans. What's what's the common name of that? Trumpet creeper is great for for hummingbirds. Um, Crossvine is great for for hummingbirds. Uh, blue lobelia. There's so many native plants that, that hummingbirds depend on. In the spring, columbine, native columbines are perfect for hummingbirds. And actually, hummingbirds time their arrival as they move north with the blooming of, of columbines. So you can get all those plants in your yard, and that will give them the, the nectar that, that uh, they depend on. But don't well, get the insects that the hummingbirds need. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense that you know their migratory path uh, coincides with these different plants that are flowering because right. it's their food. And uh, it's just interesting how nature has its own little map yep. and yep. all different species. It all works. Yeah, exactly. Another question that I have pertains to native grasses. I know that especially uh, in certain protected areas where they are trying to protect the native grasses, uh, it's a challenge because especially in, in certain areas, uh, the grasses may be subjected to uh, extreme inclement weather or uh, just different uh, predators that are just, you know, eating them down to the root. Uh, what do you recommend as far as trying to, I guess, reintroduce the native grasses into your own backyard. Okay. Um, our most of our native grasses, not all of them, but most of them are warm season grasses, which means they, they grow actively during the warm season, which is exactly the opposite of, of our typical lawns, which are cool season European grasses. They do well in the spring and the fall and don't grow uh, unless we water and fertilize them. They don't grow much during the summer. So our warm season native grasses are typically bunch grasses. They grow in clumps. Uh, and if you're going if you're trying to replace your lawn with with native warm season grasses, you don't want to do it in an area where where you want to mow and and walk. You should keep those European grasses there because 
our native grasses are clumpy and it doesn't want to be mowed during the growing season. That that will eventually will kill them. You want you want them to be able to grow. But they make these beautiful clumps and in a, a typical eastern prairie situation, um, it leaves space between the grass clumps, and that is exactly what the the uh, animals, and particularly the birds that nest in in our uh, native grasses, want. So things like meadowlark, things like bobolink, uh, the grasshopper sparrow, they need clumpy grasses in order to. Uh, they you think they fly away, but they often run between their their um, you know around their nest and, and to escape predators. And if, if the grass is too dense, they can't do that, and they won't go into those areas. So how do you get those into your landscape? It really depends on how big an area you're trying to restore. If you have a, a large area and you're trying to turn it into uh, a, a real eastern meadow, the best thing is to start from seed. Uh, there, there are uh, excellent books that will walk you right through this. A new one by Catherine Zimmerman called, I think it's called The Urban Meadow. You can look that up. Um, can will give you step by step on how to to get a uh, a meadow into a, a suburban urban landscape. Um, if you have a smaller area and you're trying to to get some grasses into there, I would recommend going with with plugs because then it happens much faster. If you're starting from seed, people are often disappointed the first year because even though those grasses have germinated, they're extremely small. Mm. And it takes three years to get a functional meadow when you start from from seed, where it looks it's you know thriving and beautiful. And a lot of people don't want to wait that long. But if you start from plugs, it goes much faster. Of course, the downside is plugs are more expensive. Um, and you you know once you get them in the ground, you've got to got to water them. So getting a meadow started is is actually um, one of the most challenging things that that the, the native landscaper uh, will undertake. Uh, compared to planting a tree, which is which is easy, as long as you don't plant it too deep, that's the most common mistake people make. They dig that hole. They think a deeper the a hole is is better, but it's not. A wider hole is better. You don't want the plant to to um, sink down below its its uh, basal crown or whatever they call that there, because then soil gets up against it, and that's the most common cause of of uh, death when you when you're transplanting a tree. Yeah, it, it's interesting how if people uh, sought out the advice and expertise uh, from professionals that, you know, they specialize in caring for these types of plants, uh, they not only would be successful, but it would also save them a lot of money. It, it just seems to make okay. sense that, you know, you don't just find a plant in your local garden center or tree, shrub, what have you, and plop it in the ground, and then that's it. Uh, it's interesting that people are becoming more uh, particular as far as the types of plants that they're planting, and it's good to see that there's more information out there as far as, okay, well, if you do select this plant, what you can expect and how long it will take for it to really... Um, you know, uh, start to take off. Right. You know, a lot of people think that that um, in order to get a big plant fast, you should plant a bigger plant, particularly with trees, and they'll spend a lot of money getting getting bigger trees. You can do that. I mean, there'll be a lot of nurseries very happy to sell you a large tree, but um, they're difficult to transplant, um, so installation is expensive. And the first thing they have to do is reestablish their root root mass that was severed when they were transplanted. And they often just sit there for several years as they're building up roots. Whereas if you started with a much smaller tree, uh, they build up the roots much faster. And in the end, it might be it might be uh, five, seven years down the road, but in the end, that smaller tree will actually grow faster and bigger than that big one that you put in. And you will save hundreds of dollars if you do that. So it's it's delaying gratification. Uh, in in a way that will save you a lot of money, and you'll still get you get to the same point um, in the long run. But wouldn't uh, a younger tree have a more strong, a much stronger uh, root system than if you were to take a more mature tree and transplant it? Well, it's 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 that the smaller the the tree or the bush, the less um, 
damage has been done to the roots when it was transplanted. And of course, the ideal situation is to start from seed. Then there's no damage to the roots. Oh, of course. The first thing the first thing a, a young oak tree does is put down this huge root system, um, and it doesn't grow much the first first two years. But after that root system is down, then it takes off, and they grow much faster than than you would think. Um, so, uh, but and and of course. They're healthier because they've never been they've never been shocked with transplant, and half the roots have ever been cut off, uh, so they don't have to rebuild anything. That's the advantage they have. Now, what about some of the other species uh, as far as your yard? Uh, do you think that it's better to get, say, a native blueberry bush as opposed to some type of particular variety that might yield, um, you know, a X number or X number of pounds of berries. Uh, I'm just giving you a, right. a generic example. I mean, right. uh, what are you feeling about native fruit trees? Uh, I, I love them. You know, blueberries are very highly ranked um, plants. Really productive. They have great great fall color. They give you those those berries, uh, and and they're productive in terms of supporting supporting wildlife. If you now, I have I have uh, blueberries in my yard, and we do get berries off of them, but we don't spray, and uh, we lose some of the berries to the birds. And oh, there there are, there are moth larvae that that um, love blueberries, and they eat a lot of the leaves later on in the summer. Those are the types of things that if somebody's trying to maximize fruit production, they would go crazy over. But those blueberries are doing doing a job for several organisms in my yard. I'm one of them. But the birds are another one. The the, the Lepidoptera larvae are, are others, and so we're very happy with that relationship. Um, you know, if you're growing if you're growing peaches or apples, there's no way you're going to get good peaches or apples without following all the 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 re- regimen for for producing those things, and that often includes frequent sprays. Uh, so that's a little bit different. You're producing food for yourself versus food for for the the food web in your in your yard. Uh, so you have to depend on you know you have to decide what your your primary goal is when you're putting in these fruit trees. But um, we have another question. This is coming from Facebook. Um, uh-huh. George would like to know: Isn't it true that the native species tend to thrive more than a plant that is not um, from that part of the uh, region? Right. And also, don't they require less work? Um, well, yes and no. <laughs> if you think about it, the the introduced uh, invasive species like autumn olive, like like porcelain berry, uh, like multiflora rose, these things that have invaded our our natural areas do really well. They grow really fast. They're highly competitive, and um, even though they're from someplace else, we can't argue that they're not doing as well as our native species. In fact, they're outcompeting our native species. So it's not a given that just because it's from someplace else, it's not going to not going to do well. On the other hand, um, it is very easy to get an ornamental plant uh, from from someplace else and try to force it into your local situation where it just doesn't want to be. So that's where that notion comes comes from. If you take a plant that, that really belongs there in the soil type and the, sh- and the shade and the water um, regime and the, the altitude and latitude and all that stuff, then it's going to do better from than a plant that, that um, belongs in the Himalayas or something else. So that makes sense too. But but the generality that native plants are always going to be hardier and, and do better than the non-native plants is just not true. If that were true, we wouldn't have any invasive species at all. Uh, so less maintenance. It does depend on whether you put the right plant in in the right place. Uh, you know, it's if you have lawn, it's pretty easy to sit on a lawnmower and mm. mow it. Um, and if you have a, a lot of woody plants in your yard, um, particularly getting them established is is a lot of work. I don't want to kid you about that. Once they're established, once you have those beds really well planted, uh, then then it is a lot less work. Because you you don't have to mow that every week, um, but um, getting there can be a lot of work. A lot of people have have um, particularly if they have any natural areas in their in their yard, they have lots of invasive species already. So first you have to get get rid of those. That's a lot of work. 
So, you know, good land stewardship and getting the getting the land into a productive situation can be a lot of work, but it's really satisfying. You can make it you can make it a lifetime goal. You can say I'm going to work on this little section um, this month and 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 you don't have to do it all at once. But if, anything you do do, you're going to see positive um effects from and and be happy that you you did do it. Thank you so much. And Dr. Tellamy, can you tell our audience um, about your website and how they can pick up a copy of your book? Uh, okay. Uh, the easiest way, well, you know, the, it's in your local bookstore, but, uh, of course, it's also on, on Amazon.com. Um, my website, uh, the, the one that would give you the most information, is bringingnaturehome.net. So bringing nature home is all one word, and .net. Uh, on that website, if you follow the directions, you can you can come up with a ranking of all the the woody plant genera in the Mid Atlantic states in terms of their ability to support food webs, uh, from the best to the to the worst, uh, and also all of the herbaceous plants from the best to to the worst. And that can be uh, important information if you're trying to restore a particular area. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been wonderful talking to you and also about your research. And I know uh, you know, we have so many wonderful questions from the audience. And unfortunately, we can't uh, have you on for the next three hours. But, uh, folks, thank you so much for all the questions. And uh, the book, Bringing Nature Home, it's really such a wonderful tool that you can use to introduce some of these species, uh, just what they, um, or how they coexist in your own home garden habitat, and it's just a great book for children, and also for people who are avid gardeners, just people that are interested. Uh, It's just a wonderful book that should be part of anyone's collection, especially if you have a love of nature. Uh, But Dr. Talmy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the, the opportunity. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.